0: I'm Claire White, and joining me is Kyle Willoughby. Hello. And this is Dragon, Sexy Robots and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. We are here to discuss new nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. And today, we are talking about the terror.
1: Yes, The Terror. So, for those of you who don't know, The Terror is a gothic horror historical fiction show on AMC, and it's based on the book of the same name by Dan Simmons. The Terror follows the Franklin Expedition of 1845, which was a real-life expedition funded by the British government in search of the Northwest Passage through the Arctic Ocean. The expedition consisted of two ships and 129 men, the flagship Erebus and the icebreaker Terror. Both ships and all men disappeared mysteriously into the Arctic and, despite numerous rescue and research missions, would remain unfound for almost 170 years. The show concerns what happened to those ships and takes on a supernatural explanation. The Terror stars Jared Harris, Tobias Menzies, Syrian Hins, and Nive Nielsen. Um, and I'll be talking production. Claire will be talking history. How about the Northwest Passage? That's-
0: there are a lot of directions I could have gone here. <laughs> yeah. um, but I what fascinated me the most was this kind of obsession with finding this route that just, I mean, in hindsight, doesn't seem worth it. It's so hard. Why were you all so desperate to find this incredibly difficult route?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, Even though all the odds were against you and how helpful could it be if it was so north anyway? So without further ado, I'm going to explain, for those who don't know, what the Northwest Passage is. It's a route that connects the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans through the Canadian Arctic Archipelago. It spans 900 miles from north of Canada's Baffin Island to the Beaufort Seas in North, uh, which are north of Alaska. To get across it, you would have to pass through thousands of icebergs, some as high as 300 feet, and deal with these cold, icy conditions. No matter what time of year, obviously worse in winter. Yeah. Um, It wasn't actually navigated by sea till 1906. And like I was saying, if it took so long and was so hard, why did all of these smart people think that there was a way to get across it and why were they so focused on it?
1: That's what baffles me. 900 miles, it seems pretty far. 900 miles through icebergs and conditions so cold that, you know, your teeth are exploding
0: well, that was because of the lead poisoning.
1: Was it? I thought yeah. that was I thought that was a, a a cold thing where your teeth would freeze oh. and could shatter.
0: Yeah, maybe that was. Yeah. Um, well, I'm gonna get into that. Also, the people who were really focused on finding it, not all of them were actually
1: going to find it. Yeah, it's easier to, like, give that order than it is to carry it out, I guess.
0: So, like many other topics on our podcast, the idea behind the Northwest Passage started with the ancient Greeks.
1: Oh, really?
0: Aristotle believed that the world had to be balanced. There had to be as much land in the Southern Hemisphere as the Northern Hemisphere. Otherwise, the world would wobble and there would be a sea on either side of it. And this was used a lot to say, like, well, of course, if there's a sea in the south, there's a sea in the north. Yeah, Ptolemy believed Earth had four habitable zones balanced out by two frigid zones where humans couldn't live, and these frigid zones were thought to be water. Okay. Um, in the Middle Ages, there was also this belief called Mappamundi. Uh, which is where the continents would form were formed into the shape of a cross as a representation of Z- Jesus, <laughs> Jerusalem being in the center. Wait. And in these maps, there was an ocean that circled the entire world. <laughs> it's just so funny to
1: me. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> they
0: really believed
1: it. The continents must be in the shape of a cross. <laughs> so it's how God has decreed it. <laughs> Jerusalem will be the center. I don't know. It's just so ridiculous. <laughs>
0: Um, Well, (laughs) as time went on and Europe came into the Renaissance, the common belief was that the Northwest Passage had to exist. Now, this belief was largely based on maps of areas that hadn't been explored and tales and these ideas from the ancient Greek Romans and medieval eras. Um, Even though that these medieval and ancient Greek and Roman ideas were disproved over time, the belief that the Northwest Passage was there still remains really strong. And the whole European continent wanted to find and control the Northwest Passage, and most of the major powers searched for it at some point. Now, part of the reason Europeans started really focusing on the Northwest Passage was that the Ottoman Empire conquered the Middle East in the mid-15th century and started controlling the trade routes between Asia and Europe. And the Western powers had to find another way to get to Asia.
1: I was wondering about that. Like, so what was the point of the Northwest Passage in the medieval era? Was it just something they didn't really care about it? They just thought it was real?
0: They thought it was real. The thing is, like— I'm actually getting into that. After Columbus found that there was a continent blocking Asia and Europe, the idea of the Northwest Passage became an even bigger deal because it was a way to get around the continent. Yeah, yeah. So I think it was the Ottoman Empire, and then it was, oh, there's a continent in between us and Europe. Also, the world is round. Yeah. And we have to work out a way to, like, circumnavigate it. Yeah. So first of all, in the 15 and 1600s, when countries started looking for the Northwest Passage, many actually didn't have control over a route to Asia. The Spanish controlled the Straits of Magellan, which is basically at the bottom of South America, and the Portuguese controlled the Cape of Good Hope around the tip of Africa. This left the English, French, and Dutch needing to find their own way to the Far East, and they desperately wanted a piece of that trading money. The Spanish and Portuguese were getting rich off of it, and they were also doing incredibly well with the territories they had claimed. Uh, The northern European countries were left with North America, which they initially saw no value in. There were no gold, no gems, but they thought maybe it could provide a way to Asia. The French eventually gave up looking and contented themselves with the fur trade they had going in North America. The Dutch tried multiple times in the 17th century to go over Asia, but they gave up when the ice kept on blocking them. So that left the British, who were the only ones left really pursuing the Northwest Passage. And they believed it was just waiting to be discovered. And why did they believe this? Why were they so obsessed with it? So there were scientific interests in many areas. One that I saw was geomagnetism, uh, which they were studying. And they were trying to discover the Earth's magnetic fields. And the variation of them was greatest in the Arctic. And they thought there might be a magnetic pole in the north. Also, after the end of the Napoleonic Wars, many Royal Navy ships were not being used. Um, the number had been about halved. And they think it was a factor in the economic depression that happened right after the war. And there was this question of what do we do with all of these men who we aren't using anymore? Yeah. Officers only got half pay when they weren't on duty, which actually wasn't enough to support them and their family. Also, since the Battle of Trafalgar... The Navy hadn't had much to do but escort convoys and keep the defeated French Navy out of the water. There was no chance for glory. Glory meant higher budgets for the Navy, and discoveries were glorious. Exploring the Arctic could make an officer famous and rich. Uh, The British government since 1786 had offered some sort of monetary reward for any ship that discovered the passage. And at the time, I'm pretty sure we've talked about this before, there was this romantic Byronesque air in their society. The British believed that they could defy the elements. They had just won this war. Nothing, not even the Arctic, could stand in their way. They were a northern country, and they were meant to find the passage.
1: They'd also done so well— with their navy in right. colonizing and conquering all these other far-flung places and on, on, on the earth from them, that they're like, ah, well, you know, just another thing we can do with our boats. We're right. so good with boats. And
0: at this point, they did control the seas. Yeah. So I I think a lot of this was the navy using their ships yeah. and also trying to gain a reputation and glory and money yeah. for themselves. Um Pre-Napoleonic War, there were numerous attempts to find the passage by multiple countries, and then many after the Napoleonic War by mostly the British. None were successful. The Franklin Expedition was supposed to be the most technologically advanced of its day. Um, His ships, the Erebus and the Terror, were outfitted with the latest technology for icy waters, railway engines for power, reinforced holes, propellers that could be drawn into the ship so they didn't get run into by the ice, heating systems, the ability to produce fresh water, even if the ships were frozen in like pipes that distilled it, and they were stocked with enough provisions for five years. But, like you said, they... uh, Got stuck. They also suffered from lead poisoning, which the show, the book, and many other sources blame on the tinned food. But actually, I read this really fascinating article that I'll link to, and it claimed that it actually probably wasn't the food because they were using that food on all other naval expeditions and yeah. they weren't having this problem. The one thing that was different about the Erebus and the Terror was the pipes that distilled the water. And those were made of lead.
1: Oh, you silly hubris British naval officers. And
0: I'm probably getting all the details a little bit wrong here. But the officers they found uh, in notes left by the crew were dying at a faster rate than the men. And they think that, you know, the officers were probably drinking drinking the fresher water. Yeah. Than, and the men were just drinking the distilled water that they already had. Yeah. So they actually had um, higher access to, to le- lead, the lead.
1: lead poisoned water. Yeah. So the officers were drinking all the lead water. The mm-hmm. crew was drinking the normal water. And so the officers were dying a lot faster. Yeah. Ugh. That's crazy.
0: And so the thing is that— the- this expedition might have been doomed from the beginning, especially if they were being poisoned. Um, and they have studied bodies of the men who died early, about eight months in, and they were buried in marked graves, not, you know, in the Arctic. They yeah. were able to find them easily. And these men have been studied, and apparently the um, the quantity of lead in their system was so incredibly high already. Really? This is just eight months in.
1: Yeah. So... That they were there for three more years. They were there drinking, drinking that lead, water, water
0: or eating from the tins. Possibly, probably the yeah. probably the water. Yeah. For th- three more years,
1: just going crazy in Ooh. the Arctic. That's not a. It's it's not a pretty picture.
0: <laughs> also, what the British and Franklin didn't know was that his expedition coincided with um, this period from 1810 to 1860, which was one of the coldest on record. It had the coldest summers and the lowest uh, record of ice melts.
1: Really? So they just went, they picked the wrong time to go.
0: The wrong time, the wrong <laughs> the ship. The
1: wrong water, the wrong pipes. And uh, John Franklin was kind of the uh, the wrong captain too, wasn't he?
0: Well, he had led previous expeditions. Uh, not disastrous? all of them successful. <laughs> he was old. He was in his 60s and this was kind of his comeback. He was. Yeah. Uh, he had been the governor of Tasmania. Oh, and wow. that had gone horribly wrong. Um, <laughs> he got stabbed in the back and went back to England in disgrace. So his wife actually lobbied for him to get this um to lead this to get that commission to lead this yeah. Expedition. And this was going to be, like his redemption to him. yeah. Like, he was going to find the Northwest Passage, and he was going to go down in history, yeah. which he did.
1: He, he did. did go down in history. It's true. In
0: 1948, uh, the Admiralty finally started sending out rescue missions uh, for Franklin. Wait, in
1: 1948? 1848. 1848. Okay.
0: 1848.
1: 1848. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're out there somewhere, guys. <laughs> They're hanging on. I know it.
0: <laughs> um, and this was in large part because his wife, who had pushed him to take this expedition, was then pushing everyone to go find him. She... Um, was able to raise money she yeah. was uh, offering huge rewards for anyone who gave her any information on them yeah and many of the people explorers found trouble they didn't find franklin or his crew but while they were looking, they mapped out a lot of the Arctic and contributed to the eventual discovery of uh, the Northwest, Northwest Passage. passage. Yeah. The Irish explorer Robert McClure, who went searching for the Franklin Expedition in 1850, was locked in the ice for two years, had to sled overland with his crew to be rescued from an- by another ship. But his crew was the first to traverse the Northwest Passage by ship and then by sled. Really? Right.
1: Wasn't it also a thing where the Inuits were saying, like, oh, we know where the ships are, or they, you know, they got lost around here and no one would believe them?
0: Exactly. Um, In 1854, Hudson Bay fur trader John Ray was told by Inuk men that he met stories that they had heard from other Inuit people of starving men traveling south. And they gave him relics from the Franklin expedition. They gave him things um, to back up their claim, and when he reported what he had been told um, to England, Franklin's widow, Lady Jane, led a smear campaign against Ray with the help of her friend, Charles Dickens. And this was mostly because Ray told stories of the men resorting to cannibalism. And there was this thing that, like, no, Englishmen would not do this. Dickens wrote a whole essay, racist, saying that, you know, no, this is what the Inuit do. And I'm not blaming Ray. He's just telling the story he was told. There must be mistranslation. And the the Inuit don't understand that we don't do what they do. Yeah. Now, because of this, the only credible account or only lead to the Franklin expedition was ignored for years. And, in fact, by the time they came back to it, it had just been passed down orally. And there had been so many ships coming up and down the the yeah, channel, the Arctic, the Arctic the, yeah. looking for Franklin, that it things were sure. kind of mixed up. And it, yeah. it took them a long while to like, piece together exactly what was Franklin and what was other ships. Yeah, The first to cross the Northwest Passage was Norwegian explorer Rald Amundsen in 1906. It took him three years, but this actually had little economic value because the waters he used were too shallow for commercial shipping. Henry Larson was, to, was the first to cross <laughs> oh, it in a year in 1944, but again, same thing, too shallow for commercial shipping.
1: Well, also by the time 1944 came around, there's a little something called the Panama Canal Right. which really the made the northwest passage so Right, which is controlled obsolete.
0: by the US though.
1: But still, yeah. if, the I'm sure we gave permission for the British our friends our friends our to friends pay to a little British. a little something to us yes. and they can use the canal.
0: <laughs> uh, Franklin in a sense has become a central figure in the search for the northwest passage and thanks to his wife's work, he became a martyr to science. There's actually a bronze statue of him in Waterloo Place in London honoring him and his men. And also, this is something else I found fascinating. From what I read, the Franklin Expedition is a bit of a Canadian myth.
1: That's really cool.
0: And I read that some Canadians view the expedition as the romantic birthplace of their nation, shining a light on Canada's values of heroism, patriotism, toughness, and adaptation. And uh, Canada's ex-Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, claimed that Franklin laid the foundations for Canada's Arctic sovereignty. They were able to map out the Arctic seabed because they put so much time and energy into searching Searching for for Franklin Franklin ships. Since 2008, Parks Canada has poured many resources into sending out teams during the summer to look for Franklin ships. The Inuit call it Franklin season. (laughs) Or they did call it Franklin season. In 2014, with the help of higher temperatures, modern technology finally listening to Inuit testimony, and luck, the Erebus was found, and then in 2016, the Terror was found. Canada has used finding these ships as a weightily claim over the Northwest Passage, which, as the ice has melted, has opened up and become a bit of a tricky international issue. Canada claims it. But the U.S., Britain, I think Russia
1: Russia and other
0: countries claim that it's international waters, free to all. (laughs) (laughs) And there is a possibility now of using it for trade and shipping routes. And there's also a cruise ship that goes through it, which— I was you know on their website and I thought it looked very nice.
1: does it yeah, bring a lot of canned food, Claire. <laughs> hopefully not uh, contaminated with lead uh, <laughs> you go.
0: make sure the water is good.
1: bring your own rations uh
0: yeah, but that's my segment on the importance of the Northwest Passage and it's funny that it's still something that we're dealing with today yeah
1: maybe even more so in some ways today than than at other times right because it we is can actually open now it. yeah, it can actually be used. I remember I've read a couple articles about The U.S., Canada, Norway, Russia, arguing over who gets to use the Northwest Passage. And
0: the Danish, too, right?
1: Yeah, and the Danish. Because they
0: lay claim to Greenland.
1: Yeah, which is up there in that area. Yeah. It's all very fascinating.
0: Yeah, I love the idea that, like, we are made to do this. We will conquer the Northwest Passage.
1: That's the hubris, man, and that's, I think the show, like, that's a, one of the big, yeah. big themes in the show and in the book, in Dan Simmons' book. So, I'll get started on my little production segment. Um, I want to start off by talking a little about Dan Simmons. Claire did an excellent Dan Simmons segment on our Hyperion Aww, episode. thanks, Kyle. So, yeah, so it was, it was good, and I'm, so mine's going to be somewhat abridged here. Uh, Simmons was born in Illinois, and he has a B.A. in English and an M.A. in Education, and was an elementary school teacher before he was an author. Um, Simmons got started in the 1980s with the short story "The River Sticks Runs Upstream," which was helped along by a very support of Harlan Ellison, He's a famous science fiction author. Uh, Simmons would go on to write multiple award-winning novels, including, of course, the sci-fi series *The Hyperion Cantos*, which we did an episode about for back Kyle's in June. Kyle's
0: birthday. It's for my
1: birthday, and Claire did an awesome segment on Dan Simmons, and I did a pretty cool one too on you frame sure narratives. Sure
0: did. <laughs>
1: um, but *The Terror*, which is the name of the book, was a bit of a return to form for Simmons, who had started out writing horror more than sci-fi. And funnily enough, the terror was originally inspired by not the North Pole, but expeditions to the South Pole.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, This is Simmons. I wanted to write a frightening story about Antarctica. I've always been interested in the South Pole and the toll it took on various brave men like Robert Falcon Scott. This is Simmons in an interview with AMC. Uh, This is Simmons again. I followed a footnote of an explorer named Ranu Fiennes, who skied atop the entire North Pole from one end of pack ice to the other and did the same in the Antarctic. It mentioned the lost expedition of 1845 of Sir John Franklin's crew gone missing. I lit up and thought, that's it. Oh, gosh.
0: You hear about <laughs> a bunch of men that went missing,
1: and you're like, oh, yes. That's what I'm looking for for my book. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny. He mentions that the, the South, a lot of the South Pole expeditions are, are so crazy and, and well-documented and are stories in themselves that mm. this one about Franklin gone missing has the mystery that he wanted. And even though it's not in the South Pole, it's in the North Pole, it, it still worked better for a book. Simmons also mentions that a horror story about the South Pole has problems with its indigenous life. A, there's no humans <laughs> in the South Pole. B, uh, there's no polar bears, so it would be much more difficult to convince a publisher to go for a book about a killer penguin.
0: <laughs> it just sounds like something Monty Python would come up with. It does. I know. <laughs> that penguin has a mean streak
1: a mile long. <laughs> that rabbit's got a mean streak. <laughs> exactly. And, it, and how, how pissed would people be if Simmons did set it in the South Pole and had a giant polar bear-esque killing creature?
0: Yeah. Not, yeah. not
1: true. Not right. Not no. right. Not at all. <laughs> uh, Simmons talks about how fun it was also working with characters that there has already been lots written about, um, making it easy to extend what we know about the three captains of the expedition into their personalities, all by reading letters that they wrote and what other contemporaries thought about them. Which I find really interesting that these characters in the show and in the book are are really human. They're based on on actual writings that they wrote and what people around them were saying. Like, oh, you know, like John Franklin is a really interesting character to mm-hmm. me from what I've read. Because everybody liked him, but nobody respected, respected him. him. Nobody thought he was worth a damn right. in, in situations and like these.
0: And he was these. supposed to be a very good Man.
1: But everyone liked, yeah, it's like, oh, he's such a good guy, though. You know, he sucks at expeditions, but he's He such sucks a, at
0: governing. He sucks, he sucks at, at expeditions. expeditions he ate his shoes. He ate his
1: shoes, but he's a great dude. We sh- we'll give him which, this. Which is
0: what he was known for. Yeah. He was known as the man who ate his shoes because during an expedition, walking back, he got so hungry that he ate his shoes. An
1: expedition that he didn't pack any food for because he thought that his native guides would do hunting for him. Yeah, that's the kind of person John Franklin was. um yeah. And so having all these writings about him and about Crozier, one of the other captains and FitzJames really helps with the inform the characters and it's also something that the actors playing these characters enjoyed about the role. Both Jared Harris who played Captain Crozier and Tobias Menzies who played Captain FitzJames did a lot of personal research into the historical backgrounds of their characters. And there were times during production when Harris, who plays the the most main character, I think there's yeah, a Yeah, I think we but,
0: ride with Crozier, But But really. we
1: ride, ride with Crozier the most. Harris plays Crozier. He would talk to Sue Hugh and David Kajanik, the showrunners, trying to give some of his lines away, saying that he didn't think Crozier would be privy to certain information that you know, would come out in a line or that Crozier wouldn't have some specific background of knowledge to make a certain assumption. Mm. Like apparently stuff with Crozier had, Captain Crozier had been on multiple uh, missions into the Antarctic and the Arctic, uh, and but he was trying to give his lines away to another character who was like the main ice kind of oh, ice right. expert. Be like, oh well, he would know this better than Crozier from what I from my research. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's really cool which
1: is cool and it's something the showrunner said doesn't happen often actors trying to give lines to others <laughs> because you because normally you want all the lines and right. the screen time but he's like well no I don't think Crozier would he, notice he
0: gets plenty of lines he and certainly plenty does. of screen time yeah
1: definitely does uh, David Kajanek, uh who is a producer and co-showrunner on The Terror has been fascinated by the story for a really long time uh, this is Kajanic. I used to talk about Franklin and his men as a way of discussing questions of leadership, preparedness, and fortitude. Uh, and this is Kajanik in a piece for Screen Daily by Nikki Bowen. Kajanik's fascination with the story began when he used to work as a wilderness guide. So he had read that story as one of, like, the survival or mysterious mm-hmm. stories when he was working as a wilderness guide. And he would tell it to people he was taken through the wilderness <laughs> in Oregon and Montana. Uh, When he learned that Dan Simmons had just written a book about it, he quickly read it and started working out an adaptation. A lot of places saw the potential of the show, and AMC even had it for a while, but ultimately everyone passed, says Kajanic about shopping the show around in 2009. Uh, This is him again. This was way before the success of shows like American Horror Story and True Detective, so it was much more of an untested concept. An idea of a a 10-episode show, Mm. dark, serious... No second season. It's a one-off
0: where everyone dies. Every
1: everyone dies at the end, and you know that right from the beginning. Like you know that. I know.
0: There's no spoiler for that. Yeah, it's like the very first scene. We are told they all die. Yeah,
1: these this whole crew and both these ships mysteriously vanished, but the show did eventually find its home on AMC with horror show veteran Sue Hugh brought on to help Kajanic in running the show. Hugh has produced the Stephen King adaptation Under the Dome for CBS and the horror adaptation The Whispers. Um, And Hugh says that she really loved the book, the script, and the themes of hubris and, you know, and Mm -hmm. the just general terror of the whole, whole experience. Uh, this is Sue Hugh. Hubris is a huge running theme in our show, but we also wanted to make sure that we told the, that hubris story with a little bit of subversive twist in the sense that even though Franklin carried the Victorian armor with him, we should also sympathize with the decisions he made as well. In hindsight, we know now that wrong decisions were made, but at that time, Franklin did not realize he was condemning his men. Um, and this is from an AMC interview with Hugh and Kajanich. Uh, now, one of the funny things about the terror also is that it's you know it's all set in the North Pole Arctic. Uh, it was filmed in a landlocked country.
0: <laughs> I know. I was wondering where it was filmed, and I was hoping you were going to go into this. Yes. Where was it filmed? It was
1: filmed in Budapest, Hungary, what? on three different sound stages, oh. and all of the all, most of the ice and stuff in the background. That's all animated. That's all computer and digitally animated effects.
0: Wow. It looks amazing. It
1: looks amazing. The the dive scene where the one character dives under the water. Yeah. There's no water. That's completely animated. Everything about (laughs) it. So they
0: didn't send him into icy water in an 1840s dive suit? They
1: they didn't, in fact. They thought that might be a little dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) But they didn't send him into any water. It was the, It was just filming that suit and then digitally animating wow, water that around him. So
0: well done. You know, I think it's a good thing it wasn't picked up in two thousand and nine because it probably wouldn't have looked as good. It would
1: have been. I feel like if they tried to do it that way in two thousand nine, it would have looked pretty bad. It would have looked yeah. CGI. Now there was the exterior shots, the stuff on the on the island when they kind of get outside. Mm-hmm. Um, that was done in Croatia in eighty to ninety degree temperatures. Oh. So they're like sweating their asses off in all this, <laughs> all this cold weather gear pretending that they're in the Arctic. Also, in, in when they were shooting in Hungary in the sound stages, they were looking into trying to get you know, big, big uh, industrial air conditioners and stuff to make it cold in there so that you could see the breath of the characters. What they ended up doing, though, because it does get really cold and hungry anyway, is just opening all the doors to the studios in the winter. <laughs> so you know, it was like uh, they said negative fifteen, but I think that's Celsius. So probably like around like ten, fifteen, twenty degrees. Oh. Yeah. And oh,
0: that's right. That's filming. right. Negative fifteen Celsius.
1: Celsius. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, not Fahrenheit. It's <laughs> a little, a little. So like, that
0: is there. the Arctic. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's it's pretty interesting how they shot that show, and it looks really good.
0: It looks amazing.
1: Um, the show has largely positive reviews, with a ninety three percent on mm-hmm. Rotten Tomatoes and, and an eighty four percent audience score. And actually, the show has better reviews than the book. I looked up some bad reviews of the book, yeah. but some pretty stellar reviews of this show. Um, and that is my segment. Oh, on that's the so production. interesting, Kyle. Thank you, Claire. Um,
0: so did you enjoy it? Do you agree with? The- the media elite.
1: I enjoy the hell out of it, uh, but it was deeply uncomfortable and it certainly isn't for everyone. What about you?
0: Yeah, I thought it was great and it's not something that I would normally watch. I only watch horror because Kyle likes it and wants to do it for the podcast. I
1: know i'm <laughs> I'm really expanding your horizons you really claire
0: are. So, I watched the first episode, and I thought, "Oh my gosh, Kyle is going to love this because I, I think I watched it first dark and scary. <laughs> it, it is a great show, yeah, One of the best things I've seen in a while. And credit to AMC for just having such a diverse roster. I know you don't love it, but they have this and they have Into the Badlands. I
1: know, I know. And they have The Walking Dead. Yeah, they have The Walking Dead. Yeah, it's true. They really do have a, a great diverse roster of shows. And Claire, you make me read more YA, which expands my own horizons. So it's <laughs> yep. not a one-way street You're, here. you're welcome, Kyle. <laughs> so thank you for that.
0: I wanted to ask, we both started reading the book, I don't think either of us has finished it.
1: It's a hefty book. It's 700 pages. Kendall
0: says 14
1: hours. 14 hours? Yeah. I think that's that's a, a optimistic estimate.
0: <laughs> but I wanted to ask your opinion on the show versus the book. I didn't realize that the book had bad reviews.
1: Yeah, a lot of people, well, the reviews that I read, I read a really scathing one by the Washington Post that was like, it's too long, it's such a drag, who wants to be stuck in the ice <laughs> for, you know, 700 pages, who cares? Uh, Dan Simmons has lost his touch so far. I mean, it's long, but I really like it. I think it's really informative about the technology of the time, and like, it's really right. interesting to read about the expeditions and what they were doing and what we do know and versus don't know. And I like, I kind of like that they're stuck in ice, getting picked off one by one. Like,
0: <laughs> I'm glad you like it, Kyle. <laughs> what
1: about you? What are your, your thoughts?
0: Um, I. Did enjoy the book, especially in the beginning. I was just fascinated by it, and like you said, him bringing in all the historical aspects and the technology, and kind of comparing it to like the characters are able to kind of say like what we know now, like what yeah. would have been the smart thing. Yeah, I do think there is an air of showiness to it of like, look how much research, research I did. I like which that. I know <laughs> I was going to say, which I know is uh, ironic because of this podcast yeah, and <laughs> what true. I do. I think that the TV show is. Better though, which is one of those instances where I think the TV sh- because you can show it. Yeah. Uh, the TV do- show does such a good job at showing. Yeah. What bad decisions are made, and they can just show the technology. Yeah. They don't have to talk about it. No character has to describe it.
1: That's true. That's true. And it's uh, it's more concise in that way. Also, um, the
0: the dialogue is so good in the TV show. Yeah. yeah. When I was watching it, I was excited. To see more dialogue scenes where it's just yeah. two characters conversing. And that is a uh, credit to the script, yeah. to the character development, and to the actors that's, that's who do Sue, such yeah. a good job.
1: That's Sue, Hugh, Kajanik, and then, uh, and then the actors who do a really great job. But some of those lines are di- lifted directly from the book. Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, I don't dislike the book at all. Yeah. But I there are points where he's going on about, you know, this particular, like, technological Thing that was going on Which at the time. I find so fascinating. Right. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it was, but sometimes I'm like, okay, I get much, it. Yeah. I get it. I get it.
1: Yeah. The was a, in that interview with Dan Simmons. It was funny. One of one of the things that was asked about him because I think this is his first adaptation, something that he's written that's actually come out to screen, which is crazy because there's been a lot of other stuff he's written has been worked toward but never Mm -hmm. actually come through, but they say, what's it like seeing something you've written on screen? And he says, it's it's the most wonderful feeling to see characters on screen Say some lines that you wrote in your book, and it's something that I feel like every author should get the privilege to say. Right.
0: I mean, he got lucky. The people who got yeah. and Sue, they yeah. just did a marvelous job. Yeah.
1: Well, I think, yeah, it was, it was good that he had people who were really passionate about the story and about the book, too. David Kajanik really liked uh, Dan Simmons' book, and that was part of the reason why he was pushing to get this adapted.
0: Um, Because I feel like in the wrong hands, this could just be very sensationalist.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: And it's not that at all. I feel like they focus in on the relationships between the men. Yeah. Um, And then you said you wanted to talk about um, horror?
1: Yeah, I want to talk about some of, like, the horror in the show and how I I think it kind of traces its roots back to – Dan Simmons' first, I don't know if he was a mentor, but the guy who helped him get his first story published, Harlan Ellison, who wrote a lot of existential terror and existential horror. And um, and I, I feel like there's a, a lot of that in both the show and the book, The Terror, that mm-hmm. that the idea, it, it makes you feel so small and so insignificant. It's not that you're afraid of being, of getting your head ripped off or whatever, but it's it's you coming to terms with, how little control you have over the things around you, and and how small you are in comparison to say this great Arctic expanse, right?
0: Where everything's
1: a, trying to kill you. There's
0: a monster, but the monster isn't the scariest thing.
1: The monster is definitely not the scariest thing. And Simmons even says that the monster is like is, is included in there, and it's supposed to kind of represent the ideas of the men uh, dealing with starvation, dealing with uh, freezing.
0: Right. Also we know madness. We know they're being poisoned and they're going crazy. So especially while reading the book, you're taking everything that has to do with the monster, especially with a grain of salt. Like are they just hallucinating? Yeah,
1: it's just a group delusion because they've been drinking lead water for three years. Yeah. (laughs) It's very possible. The show it's a little more concrete.
0: Yeah. In the show, there is a monster.
1: There's a monster. But they are also going crazy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I um on that note, I wanted to talk about survival horror. I read this fascinating article in The Atlantic called The Terror is More Than a Chilling Monster Show by Asher Elbein. And he talks about the trend of survival horror in TV right now, especially with zombie shows like The Walk Walking Dead. Yeah, that's, I didn't think about that. And how the show does a really good job of, like I said earlier, not making it sensationalist, but also making the men for the most part, fairly good. And yes, they're at odds, like the odds are stacked against them. And yes, they're probably going to die. But this show is more about their what they're psychologically going through and yeah. how that they are relating to each other on that level and yeah. why these extreme decisions get made, as opposed to just like sensational like action, 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 action. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I really, I almost did my segment on uh, survival horror, and I decided oh, really? that the Northwest Passage was, was more, more interesting, interesting to yeah. me. Yeah. But I, I like the idea, um, especially in like right now. I think anti heroes are the thing on TV, and that was led by Mad Men and Breaking Bad. I know Sins of Anarchy
1: and Game of Thrones too. Oh, yeah. Game of Thrones
0: yeah. too, and I, I mean, I love some of those shows. Like I, I. Love um, John Hamm's character. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Don Draper yeah. in Mad Men. I acknowledge that Breaking Bad is a great show. But what I did really enjoy about this show is that the main characters are good people.
1: Yeah. They're good. There's some, they're flawed, but they're good. They're flawed, but yeah.
0: overall that they're good. And I like that—I hope that TV kind of starts— changing a trend a little bit and making more shows about...
1: Balance it out a little more. ...good people. Yeah, Yeah,
0: because I feel like it's like, oh, he's a flawed person. Yeah. It's just so trendy and...
1: Well, I think one reason that helps with those characters being portrayed as such good people is also that there's you have their letters. You have their Victorian letters Mm -hmm. and you have the other Victorian... Letters that other people wrote about them. And, you know, they're not like, they're not like, ah, John Franklin, he's like a Wolverine type. He's broody, But I
0: think that you could play up Franklin's um, ignorance of... You know, yeah, he's the still lower s- classes, or yeah. that he, yeah, you know, is willing to just, oh, the men will be fine. You know, we're yeah. here for queen and country. This is fine. Like everyone's yeah. gonna do what I want to do. I think they could play that into that more. They could play the captains as more aloof and less yeah. aware of what's going on that's with the true. men, or that they don't actually care because yeah. they're more upper class.
1: They, the, they portray. I think everyone does a really good job. Franklin in the show is portrayed really well. I think because you're watching him make bad decisions. But you still kind of like him. Right. And Thank he's
0: coming you. from a good place. Yeah,
1: because he's coming from a place which he sees as right and is a good place. And I feel like that's how he was described in these old letters. Everyone says, Franklin's such a good guy. He's, I mean, he's kind of an idiot, but he's such a good dude. And right. you've seen that in the show. And, and you're And
0: even characters that you start really disliking. They become more human, too, and like, oh, no, like, they have their own insecurities that make them behave in a certain way. The way way that they
1: are, yeah.
0: And I I really appreciate that. I feel like that's—I mean, the writing is really good, and you need good writers and good actors to be able to portray this. But I hope that TV— Takes a note. Just does more of it, yeah. Because this is great, and it's a it's a horror show. Like they are doing horror yeah. with good people, yeah. Which I don't I don't watch a ton of horror, but I feel like that doesn't always happen.
1: No, and it's interesting that you like that this is on the same uh, this is on the same channel as Walking Dead, which is a horror show, an action show, but it's a it's a totally different type of horror where you have these individuals. It's kind of the Wild West; these individuals are fighting back, and and through grit and determination, they're like. You know, gunning down these zombies right. and they're surviving and they're making decisions. Whereas in The Terror, it's these individuals just slowly being worn down by right. by an inescapable weather and and madness. And it's, oh, it's so good. And I kind
0: of walked out of the show. It's very dark. Yeah. But I did walk out of it being slightly optimistic about mankind. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but that there are inherently good people, yeah, and that that's humans will try and take care of each other, yeah. And yeah. I think I haven't really watched Walking Dead again. This isn't a genre that I gravitate towards, yeah. But I don't, I don't think it's a trendy way to portray humans yeah, all the time.
1: That's true. No, I, I, I definitely agree with you. It is like a, it's going against the grain in our and our current anti right. And there are climate. bad people.
0: Don't get me wrong. There are bad, very yeah. bad people in this show, but it seemed for the most part there's a lot of scared people. Yeah. There's a few bad people and there are good people.
1: Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the Inuit and their portrayal on the Ooh. show as well, which I think is, I think, is pretty good I don't know I'm uh, glad
0: you brought it up because I was reading about it and my segment yeah. was so long that yeah. I don't know I didn't know how to cram it in there
1: yeah one of the main characters is Lady Silence and the, the creature er, the Lady Silence is, is an Inuit woman and the creature is something that's kind of out of Inuit folk tale and I think you get more background on it in the book than you really do in the show you learn a bit about it in the show but I think the book goes a little bit further into like its origins and where it's come where it comes from through that folklore um, but I just, I thought, like, it's really, imp- like, the portrayal of Inuit in the show is, is pretty positive.
0: Well, I read that they con- had Inuit consultants on yeah. set, um, and then Naive Nielsen, who is the actress who plays Lady Silence, apparently they kept on consulting her, saying, is this something that your people would do? Does yeah. this feel right? Yeah. And I, th- she said that it was really wonderful to, A, like, There's a part for her because there aren't many roles written for Inuit people, but also to have showrunners that were really trying to get it right.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's really important that, like, you have this show. You can't have this show without... Inuit culture in it, you know, being being a big part of it. Especially like even if you were to just write a a, the show and take just to be about the Franklin um, expedition and not include the Inuit culture because they were living there and they're also Inuits were the ones who were who spearheaded and and really, like, are credited for finding the Terror and the Erebus when when in the most recent expeditions that were found.
0: Well, they were the ones who saw the men trying to go south. Yeah, yeah. They were the only people yeah. that had witnessed the expedition. But
1: it was with the terror, which was found in 2016, it was found because of these two Inuits who had gone fishing. And then they kind of led this crew like, hey, we fa- we're pretty sure we found a boat over here. And the Canadian expedition that was looking for the boats was not supposed to go to this little inlet. And he was like, yeah, we, we've been fishing up here and we're pretty sure there's a boat down there. Like, okay, I guess we'll go check it it's, out. And that was the terror. Right.
0: Well, it's the land that they live on. Yeah. Yeah. So they exactly. would know it better than exactly. anyone else.
1: And you know where the terror was found? In Terror Bay.
0: How appropriate. <laughs> How appropriate.
1: So I thought that was that was pretty interesting. And and I think it's great that the showrunners really took time and, and focused to make sure that it was a accurate and and good representation. Right.
0: Well, like the fur that they wear. In the show, yeah. they took pains to make sure that it would be the same thing yeah. that Inyo would have worn back yeah. then. Yeah, Real fast, to wrap us up, I compiled a list of things to do while watching The Terror. Because if you're like me, you want to watch great TV, but maybe you don't love horror. But it's a great show, so y- you should definitely watch it. But I've kind of compiled a survival guide of my own.
1: Wait, real quick, Claire. Did you only watch it during the day?
0: I tried to. I ended, up, uh, fin- I ended up kind of binging it to finish it up last night, which is if I sound tired, it's because I had nightmares all last night <laughs> from watching The Terror. I own- and I'm still recommending yeah. it, so it is great. I-,
1: I took pains to only watch it at night because that's how I like my horror.
0: <laughs> well, if you want to add to this list, then I don't know how much I value your input on this, there but are you- these-, these are my ideas. Uh, view it during the summer.
1: During the summer. Okay. Yes. Uh,
0: maybe go to the beach. If you're going to read it, definitely read it on the beach. Um, Do hot yoga.
1: Hot yoga. There you go.
0: That helps. Um, Also, try and do fun things. Just like, I don't know, hang out with your friends, play some games, have like really upbeat maybe podcasts or uh, TV shows to watch afterward. Um, Also, avoid meat for a few days.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Avoid red meat. (laughs) I agree with that one for a few days.
0: Do you have any suggestions?
1: Yeah, my suggestion, and I, I don't I don't think you should hang out with friends while watching it. I think you should watch it in the dark, and then I think you should wallow in the dread and knowledge that at the end of the day, we're all just sacks of meat and, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe used for fuel someday, and that nothing matters and the weather's going to get you.
0: Okay, so if you do watch The Terror, please tell us which method <laughs> which you use to method watch it. For? I'm curious. <laughs>
1: Wallowing in existential despair or hanging out with friends.
0: Or just trying (laughs) your best to ignore what you're watching. (laughs) Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I am Claire White.
1: And I'm Kyle Willoughby.
0: And we are Dragon, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a nerd manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com. We would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on Twitter at podcast. I can be found on Twitter at along with Claire, that's C-L-A-I-R-E.
1: I can be found at Clex303, that's K-L-E-X 303.
0: And you can find our producer James at James Bowie Jr., that's James F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R on Twitter. You can learn more about the Northwest Passage and the making behind the terror on our Facebook page and our Twitter where we'll be posting some of the articles that we read. Our producer, who is full of hubris, is James Bowie. Our logo is done by he the is. very uh, the woman who I think would survive anything, Patty Highland. Patty Highland
1: could make it out of the uh, Franklin Expedition, mm-hmm. I
0: think. And our theme was composed by Pete Rowan, who
1: he's always filled with existential dread. Let me tell you.
0: <laughs> Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures: A Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.